uh, this book is, is, uh, leads us into your next book in that um, uh, these undesigned uh, coincidences help us to establish uh, the New Testament as a historical narrative or, or, or lend to the fact. Um, and, and then in your book, uh, The Mirror and the Mask, Liberating the Gospels from Literary Devices. Um, can you explain the difference uh, for, for me, not for Tony, but for me, of uh, literary devices and historical narratives? Sure. So in, in the book, I talk about fictionalizing literary devices. You could also call them fact-changing literary devices, if you prefer. They are supposed conventions of the time that are alleged to have caused the gospel authors to think it was okay to change or invent the facts. So uh, this would, but this would be invisible. So it would appear historical. You would read it. It would look like Jesus really cleansed the temple early in his ministry. That just use that as an example because I mentioned it earlier. Okay, like <laughs> um, you know, it's just to to kind of keep an example I already brought up. But there are a lot more of these that they will mm -hmm. allege, um, and so then the, even the original readers would not have been able to tell. And that's important to know that in these uh, fact changing devices, it would be sort of like if we went to a movie, okay based on true events. The example I give, I'm probably dating myself in the book is Chariots of Fire because it's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> you probably have your own favorite biopic uh, or, you know, movie based on true events. You go and it's a very realistic movie, right? It looks like it's all really happening, but you know, walking in that because it's a movie, they probably change some stuff. And then if you want to find out what they changed, you have to go look it up somewhere else. You know, maybe you look it up on Wikipedia, or you look it up on some other um, analysis website or something that's going to show, that's going to say, well, this part really happened, but this really ha didn't happen, or this isn't when this guy got married or whatever, right? It, and their whole website's devoted to this, okay? That's what these were supposedly like. The problem is there were no websites that you could go look it up <laughs> to check, okay? So the idea, the claim is that the readers were just like, yeah, we know to take these details with a grain of salt because they could be changed, even though we can't tell which ones. Okay. They'd be guessing just like we're guessing. Right. That's the, what I call literary device view of the gospels that they are partially altered. They're partially historical, but partially altered. Now that's obviously very different from my view uh, and I would say very different from the view that is supported by the evidence, including undesigned coincidences, that when you have undesigned coincidences, you have these differences. If you just think they felt like it was fine to change the facts, then you would presumably say, uh, well, maybe one of them just changed that. Right. right. Because to make it more interesting or follow these conventions or whatever, you wouldn't even look for how it might explain something in in another book. You wouldn't even ask a question, you know, like, well, why this or why that? You know, you certainly wouldn't if you thought, for example, that John moved the temple cleansing, uh, you certainly wouldn't think that the temple cleansing explained the hostility of the Jerusalem rulers because it didn't happen. Right. I mean, yeah. it didn't happen at that time. It didn't happen till late on that theory. It didn't happen till late in Jesus ministry. So it can't explain their early hostility. So these are obviously very different views. Um, and so what I do in the mirror of the mask is that I say, you know, which of these I call my model, the reportage model, just kind of a common sense model. And I say, which of these is better supported by the evidence? You know, I'm not going in there and saying, 
oh, let's all get, you know, worried and upset and let's reject these literary devices because they upset us, you know, because emotionally we can't handle it or something like that. I say, well, let's look at the arguments, you know, let's look at the evidence. And I conclude that the reportage model is um, is better supported. So so when I'm reading this and and, and um, I, I'm, I'm understanding what's being said, is is it. Would I be inaccurate to say that John is purposefully lying to make a, a theological point in a lot of these? I mean, John or-, or In terms or of literary ones. devices. Yeah, right? for the yeah. literary devices yeah. uh, um, uh, argumentation. Like move, John or whoever- Yeah, moving yeah, the, the temple cleansing. Moved it or changed it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a contentious question. Um, <laughs> those I am critiquing will become extremely offended if I say yes to you. Um, so I'm not going to say yes to you. Here's the idea. You do a good job in not saying yes in the book too, because I'm like, I'm, <laughs> right. I'm looking okay, for the word so, lie. So, so here's the idea. Suppose- really were like a movie based on true events. Like, I don't think that the people who wrote the screenplay for Chariots of Fire were liars. Why? Because we all understand that it's just a movie, right? right, right. So the idea is that if the readers all just understood that it's just a bios, that's what they call it, you know, Greco-Roman mm-hmm. bios, then they're going to go, you know, if they're sitting in church, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying anyone's actually said this, but you're sitting in church listening to it being read because they read They read the Gospels aloud in church. Not everybody could read. And being read in church was a sign of canonicity or or very early indicator of what we now call canonicity. So they're reading them in church. And the little girl says, Mommy, did Jesus really throw out the dove sellers, you know, right there at the beginning before everything? And she says, we don't know, honey, because it's just a bios and they can change (laughs) things, right? Like you would with a movie. You take your kid to a movie and the kid says, did it really happen that way? And you say, well, maybe, maybe not. We'll go home and look it up on Google, honey, right? Okay, (laughs) except they don't have any Google to look it up on. So a lot of it would have to just be, well, we're not sure, but they're all okay with that. And in that case, you're going to say it's not a lie, mm. right? Because right. just like a movie isn't a lie. Yeah. But this it's a is piece a of very... fiction in order to help uh, dramatize or whatever what's going on. Exactly. Right? It's yeah. like fiction or partial fiction, um, but not necessarily a lie. But this is a very heavy thesis. And this is something I emphasize in The Mirror or the Mask. What of a, a, a burden of proof, I call it. And as a philosopher of knowledge, I'm interested in the question of burden of proof. You're taking out a very heavy burden of proof when you're making that claim about what the original audience would have understood so that they would literally be there. And they're sort of taking all of this with a grain of salt. That's why they're not deceived, right? Um, that's a pretty heavy burden of proof. Nowadays, you'd have no trouble per- proving the existence of those movies, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, all you have to do is go look up the websites. What was changed in this movie, right? And it's like everybody knows that stuff was changed. And the, the director himself may state, I changed that. You know, we actually have interviews and stuff. We could easily satisfy that burden of proof. But they don't have that kind of evidence for such a heavy thesis about this genre. So that's number one. And the other thing that I point out is that this would greatly undermine reliability. If you go and you're taking a history doctorate and you want to write about the history of the 1924 Olympics, I will tell you what you do not cite as an original source. Chariots (laughs) of fire. fire, Okay, right? 
You're not going to, your professor's not going to accept that in your dissertation on the 1924 Olympics. But the music's really good. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay. Okay. But the gospels supposedly are our primary sources, right? So the funny thing is, there's kind of dilemma here. The same move that excuses the gospel authors, or they say excuses them, so they're not lying, undermines reliability. Think about it. In the very act of saying, it's all okay, everybody just understood they could change a lot of stuff. What are we saying? They didn't rely on them. They didn't rely on them, at least not for anything other than the big, big picture. And it's got to be a pretty big picture. <laughs> yeah. You can have whole incidents that never happened, mm -hmm. you know, like the early temple cleansing and so forth. So it's funny because they can't have it both ways. They can't simultaneously say these are re really reliable historically. And then at the same time, say they're in a genre to where it wasn't lying because it was just understood that they could change all this stuff. You know, you yeah. can't have both of those. Yeah. yeah. So let me just, a couple of things uh, come to mind with that. Uh, the first one is kind of a, a literary philosophical question. You know, how do you, mm -hmm. how do you determine a literary device from what is true? I mean, you know, how, how would they determine that, you know? And then it's secondly, interesting uh, question. <laughs> yeah. and then secondly, um, uh, the state of the, the, uh, the, the nature of what's going on, I guess, in, in the, uh, you know, in the field, um, mm -hmm. where is it, where is it headed? You know, do you find a lot of pushback? Where's, you know, where, where are the scholars at these days? Right, right. So how would they say that they can determine it? from what is true. It's an excellent question. And it's especially an excellent question when you insist that this genre allowed for things to be changed. Uh, Dr. Lacona uses the phrase part and parcel, that these were part and parcel of the genre. If something is part and parcel of the genre, then quite frankly, we would expect them to be changed fairly widely. I mean, if I go in there and I say it's part and parcel of the genre of a biopic, to change the facts. You're not going to expect there to just be one or two. You'd expect there to be quite a few. Right. In fact, you'd expect there to be ones that you never even guessed, that you never even suspected, right? Were right. changed because they're doing it in this very realistic way. So um, generally their method that I find, uh, one big method is what I call discrepancy hunting. Mm. Um, and they'll do this with secular documents as well, that you go and you find a, an apparent discrepancy and that's where you zero in and you say, aha, maybe this is where there's a there's been a change. Now, that's not going to turn up all of them, you know. Um, and the other thing is that they're very big on what they call multiple attestation. So if something is said in multiple gospels, like we were talking about earlier, does everything right. have to be said twice? Well, <laughs> if you're a literary device theorist, it sure helps. You know, if something is said twice, because then you're like, okay, good, I'm going to take it that that's, that's real, you know, but it might be at a fairly high level. So for example, that Jesus called himself the son of man might, is multiply attested because we find him calling himself the son of man in a lot of different gospels, but whether the specific incident where he called himself the son of man happened, that might be more of a question if it's only in one gospel. Because then that specific thing is only singly attested. So we have to get, you know, we're going to end up defending things at a much higher level of generality is what I would say. Um, and that's that's what they tend to do to try to distinguish fact from uh, what I call fiction. They don't like the word fiction for some reason. But <laughs> I mean, it, you know, honestly, 
fiction isn't necessarily an insult. I love fiction. My doctorate is in literature. Yeah. I love fiction. I'm not saying fiction is immoral, but I don't think the Gospels are fiction. And frankly, I don't think the audience did think that way. So I think the audience would have been misled. And now we have a problem. Now we do have a problem with with um, honesty and dishonesty and so forth. Now, as far as where's, you know, where's the field going? Um, Non-Christian scholars would still consider most of these literary Christian literary device theorists to be much more conservative than the non-Christian scholars are. So it's like Bart Ehrman, you know, if I can organize it you know, in a scale, you know, Bart Ehrman is to the left of <clears throat> Michael Lacona, you know, et cetera, is to the left of Norman Geisler, you know, so we can, you know, lay this out. So it's not as though, you know, Bart Ehrman is just going to say, my buddy, you know, we agree about everything now, obviously, because they believe that Jesus, you know, really rose from the dead and they believe in miracles and this kind of thing. And Bart Ehrman doesn't, obviously, he's not a Christian, but there is actually quite a lot of, um, a surprising amount of agreement um, because the the mainstream scholars like Dr. Ehrman will argue that these are irreconcilable contradictions in these cases. For example, uh, an irreconcilable contradiction about when Jesus cleansed the temple, for example, or um, whether Jesus really said before Abraham was I am. Ehrman will argue against that. Um, Dr. Craig Evans has said regarding several of Jesus, I am sayings that um, if you followed Jesus around with a video camera, you would not find him saying that. You would, you would not actually find him saying that. And um, so it was interesting. That was in 2012 in a debate. Um, Ehrman said, so uh, you're not going to use the gospel of John as a source for Jesus life because you think it's metaphorical. And Evans said, fair enough. So they were <laughs> wow. agreeing on that. Wow. That the Gospel of John is not a, a primary historical source. So what Evan said was that the synoptics were our primary historical sources mm -hmm. for the life of Jesus, but not John, because it's quote unquote metaphorical was Ehrman's word. And then Evan said, fair enough. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think what we are also finding is that in the evangelical world, more and more people are agreeing with this. That's where I see the movement taking place. Uh, especially among apologetics, there's a whole group of um, YouTube apologists who are very friendly to to these views. Um, they're very, very intrigued by them. I'm not sure they even always understand what the views are, frankly, mm. because um, sometimes these are not spoken of in clear terms. And that's part of what the resistance has been to my work is that I'm, I'm almost putting things too bluntly. I'm supposed to use euphemisms and so <laughs> forth, but um, I, I definitely see more and more young, especially uh, evangelicals, young male, as it happens, evangelical apologists who are adopting these views, yeah. um, following, following Dr. Lacona, Dr. Evans, and, uh, and to some extent, although he doesn't say as much about it, uh, Craig Keener as well. Um, and, and actually, there are also sort of the second order group of people who have endorsed the, endorsed the work, though they themselves don't do a lot of it. So, for example, Dr. William Lane Craig has not done a lot of um, bringing up, up these um, literary devices, though he does believe John moved the temple cleansing. Since mm -hmm. that's been a thread in this talk, I'll just say he does <laughs> He does think that. And he's very clear 
that he thinks that. Um, but they will endorse Dr. Lacona's work very wholeheartedly. Like mm. he's done us such a service by showing us that there were these compositional devices. You should listen to him. So when Marty Sampson uh, deconverted, you guys probably, do you guys remember that last fall? Marty Sampson was a worship leader. If you Google it, he was a worship leader at a big mega church and he had a kind of a high profile deconversion experience. It's kind of what you might call a Twitter deconversion, you know, where he was out there. I've ceased. I'm not a Christian anymore, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and a lot of people were really upset because people had admired him. So uh, Dr. Craig did a podcast about Dr. Wheelman Craig did a podcast about uh, Marty Sampson's deconversion and Sampson talked about contradictions in the gospels as a reason for his deconversion. He even said, nobody's talking about it, which is false. I mean, <laughs> lots of people are talking about it. It's like, what, you know? But uh, Dr. Craig said, well, most of, now was the word he used, most, the contradictions here, the alleged contradictions in the gospels can be explained by the compositional devices that Michael Lacona has written about. Boy, that sure makes your apologetic uh, uh, job a whole lot easier if you can just, you know, br brush away all of that kind of stuff. Now you don't have to explain that stuff, yeah. right? It's interesting, <laughs> and especially because they won't call it an error either, even though the the information is not true. You know, I mean, <laughs> the the information that Jesus uh, say that the disciples here, I'll pick a different one. I won't keep using the temple cleansing, so we don't get bored. <laughs> but that the disciples really had a fight on the night of Jesus' um, betrayal, the night of the Last Supper. Um, to say that they really had a fight is incorrect. So if Luke says they really had a fight that night, that's false information. But we're not going to label it an error. We're not going to label it a contradiction. We're going to label it a literary device. I call this word magic. This is just <laughs> word magic. It doesn't explain anything. It doesn't remove anything. If you were a new deconvert, imagine being a new deconvert. You've listened to Bart Ehrman. You've, you know, adopted the idea that these were contradictions. And then somebody says, oh, no, you need to understand. These were compositional devices. Can you really imagine someone reconverting? I mean, how probable? I'm not saying it's impossible. Anything's right. possible right. with God. But it seems to me improbable that someone would reconvert to Christianity because they've been given this new label. Because essentially, they still are contradictions. Right. You're still saying they contradict one another. You're just saying, well, he did it on purpose. <laughs> it's like, you know, if I trip or something and I say, well, that was me being funny. You know, I did it on purpose. Well, Okay, but you still spilled the milk. Okay. <laughs> okay, milk is still on the floor. You did it to be funny, but the milk is still on the floor. So similarly, if you say John did it on purpose, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they did it on purpose, the information's still inaccurate. So I really don't think this is going to address um, deconverts or uh, concerns, really. I, I don't think this is going to cause them to come back. So the... the to answer your question, there is a movement in this direction. That's And that is why I felt that I needed to write The Mirror of the Mask. Originally, it was blog posts. I wrote scholarly blog posts. Those received a huge amount of negative press. Just like, why are you doing this? This is terrible, et cetera. And besides, it's just on the internet. So that was said a lot. It's just on the internet, just on the internet. Well, a lot of things are on the internet. I mean, yeah. they, you know, you can put some really good content on the internet. Um, but I finally, I went to my publisher who had published Hidden in Plain View. And I said, look, 
I think it's almost unfair to you. I'm not sure if I make this a book, how well it's going to sell. It's controversial. People are angry about it. Um, and I've already published some of it on the internet, <laughs> but I'm getting all this pushback that I'm doing it on the internet. How would you feel about publishing it in a book form? And he said, yeah, we're doing a print-on-demand model. So that removes a certain amount of our um, financial risk because you're not printing 2,000 copies and having them sit somewhere in a warehouse, you know, and then if they don't sell, you're just out that money and you've just got to rent the warehouse, you know, we're doing more of a print-on-demand model being printed in small batches and so forth. Um, we can we can have Amazon process them for it for us and so forth. He said, yes, you know, let's do it. And it's because he encouraged me that I actually put it in a book form. And it's not, it's not just what was already on the internet, but I was like, yeah, let's put it in a book form because this is important because people are coming to believe this. Yeah. I, I really felt when, when reading uh, kind of what Tony was saying, r- removing um, uh, the, the dealing with the tensions. It, it, it seems like that's an easier way. I felt like I was kind of reading the Jesus seminars again. Mm. And, and, and it felt like uh, some of the, the quotes that you would make, I'm like, this is something that like John Shelby Spong would, would be <laughs> comfortable <laughs> with, with saying. And, 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 and right. I, you know, I, I, I really do take your point of, of writing fiction isn't lying. Um, but at the same time, it seems odd that you would still want to be, uh, you know, c- considering uh, what type of Christian you are and, and, and holding to, you know, if, if, if you're a Christian that believes in salvation by, by, by Christ, it seems like it's a hard thing to, to put into, um, into your mind that, oh, well, we can believe the resurrection. And kind of like what Peter Enns does. He says, mm-hmm. you know, anything in the Gospels it, uh, that that leads towards salvation is true. Everything else is, eh, you know, whatever. Negotiable. <laughs> well, and especially yeah. since we're told to follow Jesus. And I talk about this at the beginning of the Mirror of the Mask, right? Um, you know, if this gets very practical. Um, suppose you want to comfort somebody who's had someone who's just died. And you say, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And they say, "Um, I read that the gospel authors sometimes embellish Jesus' words. So I'm not (laughs) sure Jesus really said that. Can you use that to comfort somebody as pastoral practice by saying that Jesus said it? This is something that my my good friend Tom Gilson has written about quite a lot uh, since Mirror of the Mass came out. This would alter pastoral practice. This would alter teaching and preaching. You get up on a Sunday morning Mm -hmm. and you say, you know, here's this incident in the Gospels. It happened. It happened like this. Yes. okay. they were not speaking English. We're not stupid. We know that. Okay, but but at least recognizably, if you had known the relevant languages, you could have recognized what they were saying. Um, And so, for example, Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, that incident is questioned whether that incident even happened is questioned by some evangelicals. Um, So are you going to feel confident to preach that way? And so Thomas said, you know, don't try to don't try to tell us this doesn't matter. This actually does matter. And shouldn't we if this is true, shouldn't we be out there educating all the pastors? Hey, pastors, don't get up on a Sunday morning and say that this happened. Say that Jesus did this because it didn't really happen that way. So there are real practical consequences with regard to these issues. Mm -hmm. They really they really are. You guys and I both know that pastors care about what really happened. 
And I think they're right to care about what really happened. Mm-hmm. That's why you'll get a pastor and will get off in a little rant. You know, the uh, <laughs> let's see, the the wise men didn't come to the manger. Right. I mean, you, I'm sure you guys have heard <laughs> right, the right. sermons. Right. Or no, Mary Magdalene was not a prostitute, you know, or whatever. Right. That, that if there's some tradition that's grown up, that's not historically accurate, the particularly Protestant pastor, though I imagine a, a Catholic or liturgical pastor as well could have this concern, wants to pare that away. Right. He wants to get us back to what historically really happened. And therefore, they're going to want to know if this yeah. is true or not. And I don't think we should patronize them. I don't think we should say, oh, don't don't bother your heads about that. Don't worry about that. I think we should talk to them honestly. And that's why I think they should uh Read, read my work because it's good news because uh, it really did happen. You know? I, I felt too, also with, with reading this, uh, it, it reminded me of what Origen did with the Old Testament. If, mm-hmm. if you can allegorize, allegorize everything or anything in the Old Testament, you, you can make it say whatever you want. And so by, by having these kind of literary devices, at, at what point do you stop? I mean, uh, you know, you, of course you go along with scholarship and say, oh, you know, uh, uh, Jesus walking, fine, Jesus walking on water, eh, you know, eh, maybe not. And so you, you allegorize uh, the New Testament. I, f- I feel like this is a, an attempt of, of, of the new origin to, to kind of allegorize the New Testament. There is a lot of subjectivity to it. Um, and there's a phrase that I, I really admired D.A. Carson as a scholar. He'll use the phrase without objective control. And I think that's what you're getting at, that this is without objective control. Yeah. Very often you'll find that just the fact that somebody could think of a theory is enough to give that theory credit. So um, I'll give you an example. There's the theory that John changed the time when Pilate condemned Jesus, um, because there's an apparent contradiction between John and Mark about what time of day it was. I tend to go for a scribal error theory on that one, because the, they used these little, um, what would I call them? It's, it's like a shorthand Okay, for a number and the number six and the number three were very similar and that it might have just been a very early scribal error to confuse the the six and the three. But anyway, um, the more the more scholarly literary theory is that John changed it for a symbolic reason. So uh, one symbolic reason is supposed to be so that Jesus would die at the same time that the lambs were being killed in the temple. Well, I mean. John doesn't mention when the lambs were being killed in the temple. He doesn't even bring up lambs anywhere there. And besides, when you have hundreds of lambs, you're not killing them at any one time (laughs) in the temple. It takes a while to kill all those lambs, right? You know, so, I mean, it's just not plausible. And John's uh, Gentile readers, and, and he's probably writing after the fall of Jerusalem, maybe even some of his younger Jewish readers wouldn't even know what the practice was as far as when they killed the lambs in the temple. So this is a very implausible theory. So you go to uh, Dr. Craig Keener's commentary on the Gospel of John, and to his credit, he brings up some of these arguments against that theory about the lambs being killed in the temple. But then he says, but um, readers of John will recognize that it was at the sixth hour when Jesus was weary when he sat down at the well in John chapter 4. So it's like we have to have some symbolic theory. Like we realize that this business about the lambs being killed, that's not going to fly. 
So now we bring up some different thing about it was to, to recall the, the time when Jesus was weary. And it's like, you know, why not just say that there's something we don't know, maybe a scribal error, maybe a rounding difference between John and Mark or whatever, that actually explains why they appear to differ here. Instead of trying to make, it's like we could just make up some theological motive that the author might have had. And we're trying to read the author's mind. Uh, and that is without objective control. Going into kind of uh, uh, our general look at what apologetics um, does when it comes to this, uh, how does how does studying uh, the, the the topic that you um, put forth here, how does that help us in our apologetic model? Um, yeah, excellent, excellent question. So I advocate something I call the maximal data approach to uh, supporting the resurrection and Christianity. And this is in contrast to the minimal minimal facts approach, minimal approach. I advocate the maximal approach. <laughs> now that doesn't have to mean that you tell everybody everything that you know, and you make them sit there for five hours and listen to you talk. In fact, I can state a maximal data style argument in, you know, two minutes, there's an elevator version, you know, either the God, either the disciples were deceivers, they were mistaken, or they were telling the truth. They were not deceivers because they were risking death. They were not mistaken. And this is the important part because of the details of what they claimed. They claimed they, they, they talked to Jesus, you know, face to face and they met him in groups and they, they could touch him and all that. Not the kind of thing you can be mistaken about. You know, whether you've spent spring break, you spent a lot of time with your best friend, you know your best friend. So they were not mistaken. Therefore, they were telling the truth. There's my elevator version of a maximal data case. But you'll notice what I did. I made use of the details of the gospel resurrection accounts, right? That he could eat, that he could be touched, that they met him in a group all together on, on numerous occasions. They had big conversations with him, et cetera, right? And if um, my person I was talking to tried to argue that it could have just been a hallucination or maybe one person had a hallucination and convinced the others, I'm going to say, you know, that's really lame because it just doesn't explain these accounts. Look how detailed these accounts are. No, I think you're going to have to say they were lying, but that's not going to fly either, et cetera, right? Because of the risks that they took and so forth. So why? that's why we need those details. Just to say, well, a majority of scholars acknowledge that, that, that Jesus, the disciples had appearance experiences. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's an appearance experience? As a matter of fact, this is hot. This is hot off the press. I'm going to give you something new. Never been said in public yet. I had an exchange with Bart Ehrman on uh, his blog recently. Um, I had bought a year's subscription to his blog for research purposes. And I went back to an old post that was on there. I think it was from 2012. And I put a question in the comments and he answered it. So, uh, and then I asked a follow-up, he answered that. And then I I stopped. Um, So if you subscribe to Bart Ehrman's blog, you can read this. So I said to him, I have heard it said that you acknowledge the appearances to the disciples. That, the, that Jesus, they had appearance experiences. But it doesn't look to me like you do acknowledge that there was a, an appearance to a group, you know, that you grant that. And so I'm wondering if, if, if you grant the appearances to groups or not. And if you do, what do you think they were like? 
Okay, let's be specific. What specifically do you think they were like? Okay, so I'm not going to try to give you verbatim what he said, but um, the short version was he said, well, I don't grant the appearances. Maybe I should say, excuse me, group appearances. He thinks he thinks that Peter had some kind of experience. Mary Mary Magdalene had some kind of individual experience. He said, I don't grant group experiences. Maybe there were, maybe there weren't. Um, There could have been. But then he said, I think they were like some Marian, uh, Marian apparitions. And so then in the follow up, I said, but I mean, I don't think they usually have meals with the Virgin Mary <laughs> in groups when they have Marian apparitions. Right. Or long conversations. If they did have group experiences, do you think that it included those kinds of things? Because I know you think those are embellishments in the Gospels. I know you don't think. That's what the witnesses really said, right? So he said, usually in the Marian apparitions, the original group experience is seeing at a distance. Mm. And then they're embellished later. Mm. Now that's really important because when you're trying to um, get a lot of scholars to agree with something, Oh, wow. Even Bart Ehrman agrees with this. Oh, even this scholar agrees. Even Garrett Ludeman agrees with this. Even Wolfhard Pannenberg, you know, these very liberal scholars, they all agree (laughs) that there was an appearance experience. And all you get is seeing at a distance. Right. How strong of an argument is that? (laughs) <laughs> for for the resurrection. I don't think that's a very strong argument. Oh, no, over there. No, look like Jesus. You know, I, I'm sorry, but that's not going to give you, if, would you believe that some dude was risen from the dead? No wonder people compare it to Elvis sightings, <laughs> right? Because that's what an Elvis sighting is like, right? A supposed Elvis sighting. So when we're watering down what we're doing to get high numbers, like a percentage of agreement, then we're not going to have a strong of an argument. That's just, it's like a, it's like an inverse relation. It's an inverse function. Okay. The higher the number of, of liberal scholars you get on board with it, the weaker an argument it is for the resurrection. Okay. So that's why we need to argue that the gospels are not embellished like that, that they're reliable early accounts so that in the resurrection accounts, we can say, no, at a minimum, this is really what the disciples told, say, Luke, for example. This is what happened to us. We ate with him, right? Uh, Mark represents what Peter told Mark, right? John represents what John actually said. That's what he said happened to them. And they met him and they talked to him and he breathed on them and he had these conversations and he ate fish with them and so forth. So that these represent what the disciples themselves claimed that's really foundational to a very strong argument. So this is how I make a practical application of um, arguing for the reportage model, um, that it really is very important for arguing for Christianity. And so ultimately what it comes down to is how do we take the Gospels? Do we see it as an accurate reflection of what it's saying or is it being obscured by a mask, if you will? And, exactly. and seeing, seeing if, if there, there's uh, uh, kind of this designed uh, attempt to, um, uh, to, Massage to, construct, the facts. to right. construct a narrative rather than let the narrative right. play out. Correct. Yes. Right. The author's own agenda, the author's own version, which mm-hmm. is different from the truth. That's correct. Great. Um, so, uh, um, we appreciate your time here. Uh, yeah. what, what, what is, what's, what's next book? 
uh, I know what it is, but because I follow, yeah. follow you on, on and you've the kind of alluded to it a couple times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's going to be I, called. I follow you on the, on the McGroupies, and when you said there's another book, and as as I was ordering this one, I'm like, I I, I need to pick up that one too because I really enjoyed the writing and and um, it's going to be a while YouTube. because we we have to get it proofread. I've just finished drafting it. It's called The Eye of the Beholder. I don't even know if it's going to have a subtitle. I don't know. Maybe Whoa. the Gospel of John is reported. You have to have a subtitle of these days, right? <laughs> you always got to have a subtitle. But I know the main title is The Eye of the Beholder. And I've commissioned a great painting that we're going to use for the, the cover art. You can wait for that. It's by a, a, a Catholic artist named Timothy Jones. A beautiful painting. And um, so it's about just about the Gospel of John. Because as we've discussed, the Gospel of John does come in for a lot of extra questioning uh, of its historicity. It's always treated as different. And it'll, it'll be interesting. You'll even see scholars talk about the Gospels and they'll say seemingly positive things. And then they'll say, and then there's John. And it's like, well, last I checked, John was one of the Gospels. Oh, we didn't mean those generalizations, those positive sounding generalizations to apply to John. Gotcha. You know, so I realized when I wrote The Mirror of the Mask, there was so much more that I would need to do to give a robust defense. There is some overlap. There is some overlap between them. Um, also, there's a huge literature on the authorship of John. Now, obviously, authorship doesn't automatically mean reportage. You'd be surprised. You can have, you can have scholars who will say, yes, it was written by John, the son of Zebedee, who was Jesus' disciple, and he made this stuff up. You know what I mean? So, so it doesn't automatically follow that it's reportage, but it helps because at least he was in a position to know. He, he was in a position to tell you what really happened. So a um, lot of, lot of material on authorship and I've had to address that. Um, I have a, an appendix on the theory by Richard Balcom that the gospel was written by a different guy named John that you, you may mm. be familiar with that, right, who yeah. was also a disciple, but he was not somebody that's ever mentioned by name in, in the Gospels. That's his theory. Um, and I, I disagree with that. But um, I answer, I rebut, you know, various uh, criticisms of John. But then I also bring forward a bunch of positive evidence for the veracity and historicity of John. So it's fun. And for the for the reportage model of John, and uh, it's, it's going to be very controversial. Again, it's going to be very rousing. And I, I think um, I think people will enjoy it. So please follow me on Facebook. I just want to tell people you don't have to be my Facebook friend to follow me on Facebook. You can just you can just click follow and then you'll get my public content, but you won't have to hear what I had for supper. So you know, <laughs> not necessary. So well, anyway, I, I do appreciate the the dress up photos that you've been doing through the uh, through the decades uh, with with your daughter. <laughs> yes, yes, um, absolutely. I, I, I will say the controversy to me is whether or not the footnotes belong at the bottom of the page because uh, hidden in plain view. I I love I love. The, the subscripts at the bottom because I'm the one that goes, Oh, that's really interesting. I want to read that book. And then I have to flip to the back and I lose my spot, but you did it in mirror in the mask. So I appreciate that. Took a reader poll, <laughs> a survey footnotes versus endnotes, And they all said footnotes. And you know, my feeling is I have a lot of URLs in my footnotes because I, I footnote to YouTube uh, interviews that people have done online, because I mean, we are living in the information age and these are living scholars. So if they've done an interview, I want to be able that, you know, to expound further on their views, I want to be yeah. able to footnote that, but URLs are ugly. I mean, they're yeah. shitty. 
you know, <laughs> down in the footnote, yeah, you know. Um, but uh, I figure if my readers are willing to put up with the ugly footnotes in order to have, you know, the interesting footnotes, then that's up to them and I will do it that way. And it is footnotes in the eye of the beholder. Right. You will be glad to know. So, yeah. <laughs> that's all I want. You, you could you could have the most uh, uh, heretical views. And if you have... If you have uh, notes at the bottom of your page, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're not an F uh, a book. Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> but, uh, Fun. Yeah, so I, I was, I was trying to think of, 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 of other, other books uh, similar to yours that, that I would put on the shelf if I was uh, one of those crazy people that organized my bookshelf by genre. Ooh, crazy. Um, but I, I, I viewed it in, in line of uh, uh, Michael J. Kruger's uh, Canon Revisited and the question of the canon, uh, kind of establishing kind of this historicity and accuracy of establishing the New Testament as intended by the authors and understood by the audience who received them. And, and Mir, I think Mirror the Mass does that just, just splendidly. I, I, I really appreciate the work that, that you put into it. And um, it, it, it might be, it, if, if you're just a general reader of, of theology and, and, and uh, the, the show is to, to help people pick up those books that, that they might mm-hmm. be nervous about, this is one that you'll probably spend a, a, a while getting the arguments and, and, and reading through it and maybe, um, pausing at each chapter and coming through. But I really thought that belonged on the shelf with um, uh, Kruger's books of, of just screwing uh, uh, yeah. up my confidence in in uh, the historicity of, of the New Testament. Absolutely. And, and I would say I have chapter summaries. So to help yes. people not to be I, so notated all, <laughs> you know, not to be intimidated, you can always go feel free to go to the chapter summary first, even. Mm-hmm. You know, and then read the chapter yeah. or skip the chapter. If you're like, I am so not interested in Plutarch, you know, okay, skip <laughs> the chapter on Plutarch if you if you want to, that would be fine, you know, but but read the chapter summaries. Um, I also want to recommend a couple of other really accessible Please. books for your for your viewers. Um, there's a book called Can We Trust the Gospels by um, Peter J. Williams. And he is the uh, principal of Tyndale House in England. He's a uh, very learned a uh, British New Testament scholar. He did endorse the mirror of the mask, I am pleased to say. And um, but this book, Can We Trust the Gospels, is a slim volume. And I think that's cool that this this great British scholar can wear his learning so lightly and can pick out his facts and present them so engagingly and so accessibly. So I strongly advocate that one. And then a little book called Easter Enigma. By John Wenham, the late John Wenham, um, New Testament scholar, he is uh, harmonizing the Easter accounts, mm-hmm. Easter enigma. Now, I, I am not saying I endorse every harmonization he gives. When people go to harmonize, they don't always agree with one another. Um, and I'm not going to go into into details about that, but I like a lot of them. I agree with most of them. And it's what we call in philosophy or also in science or in engineering, a proof of concept. So a proof of concept is where you show that something can be done, Mm. right? That it's not just impossible. And that's what Wenham is doing. It's a proof of concept that the Easter narratives can be harmonized and they can be harmonized by using uh, legitimate historical imagination. And that gets such a bad rap nowadays, like you're just some kind of crazy fundamentalist, but it's actually a really good historical practice to engage in, to harmonize. I harmonize Plutarch. Okay. So it's not just something I'm doing because I'm desperate to, you know, salvage the gospels or something. It's a very, very legitimate enterprise. So um, I think that those two, I would just throw onto people's radar because they're, they're short and they're accessible, but they're really good. 
Great. Thank you. Yeah. And, and uh, the links to those books will be uh, included in the show notes and uh, on the website for this, uh, for this episode number. And the two books are Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Quizzes in the Gospels and Acts, and The Mirror or the Mask, Liberating the Gospels from the Literary Devices. We've had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Lydia McGrew uh, from uh, probably half a town away, but uh, too far over the, the interwebs. Well, we hope we'll, we hope we'll be able to do it in person later. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you for having me. We appreciate okay. your time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. you.